Hello, and welcome to the very first ever, the very first ever episode, that makes sense, yeah, the very first ever episode of Infamous Individuals. Uh, I am Morgan, and I am joined by my friend Dom. Hello, Dom. Hello, Morgan. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, you may be familiar with us. We have another podcast called Morgan and Dom, uh, and then on this same network, we have another one called Pitch and Tent, and Dom's just kind of been around, haven't you, Dom? I'm around. I hang out. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it's nice that you keep uh, inviting me back to things, yeah. so that's good. We have a good dynamic, and I thought it'd be perfect for this very uh, vehicle, this podcast mm-hmm. vehicle, as it were. And uh, you may be asking yourself, what is this podcast vehicle? What is Infamous Individuals? And um, I guess the easiest way to describe it's kind of like a true crime, but not really. Like, it's it's in that vein, but we're, when we're looking, we're not looking at crimes or mysteries, we're looking at people. People behind the acts, or like people who've stood out in time, I guess. I don't know. I think people behind the true crime. Yeah. We're going to focus less on less on the the why and the how, and but more on the who. Yeah. And of course, yeah, there have been infamous people throughout time, and we will look at different ones... And uh, if this episode goes well, we will, of course, it'll be more of like a seasonal show as opposed to all of our other uh, projects here on the Spiker Trap Network. It is like, we'll do a certain number of episodes, that's a season, take a break. Because like this one, unlike a lot of my other ones, this one requires research and I have to work really hard for it. So <laughs> Dom just gets to sit on, sit there and uh, come along for the ride, So uh, which I'm, I'm sure he's more than happy to do. Oh, of course. Yes. The less work I have to do, the better. <laughs> Um, so that, uh, yeah, that pretty much sums up what this is intending to be. This is the first episode, so we're going to see how it goes. We're going to find a groove and it'll be, uh, great. And, uh, as you will have seen in the name of the episode, we will be covering, uh, famous Australian today. Infamous, actually, let's go with infamous. It's in the name. Let's stick with it. Infamous Australian. So today, as you will no doubt know, we will be covering Ned Kelly. And with that, let's get into the meat of the episode. Sound good, Dom? You ready? Sounds great. You ready to go bush ranging? Never been more ready. Alright, so Ned Kelly was an Australian bush ranger, outlaw, gang leader, and convicted police murderer. Uh, One of the last bush rangers, in fact, and by far the most famous. He's best known for wearing a suit of bulletproof armour during his final shootout with the police. Amazing stuff. Um, I assume you're familiar with Ned, Dom, because like me, you grew yes, up in Australia. Yeah, where Proper he's Aussie taught. hero, Ned Kelly. Yeah. Who, when you write it out like that, <laughs> cop killer. He has a lot of titles. He has a lot of titles. Not all of them are great. Um, but yeah, he was taught in our schools. He's considered somewhat of a legend by some people. I think it's a little less likely... Like, Definitely the further out you go from the main cities, definitely embraced a lot more. But we will definitely be discussing that legend status later on in the episode because it is a, it's an interesting one. I think he is a, a huge icon of of sort of Australian history and, and a real part of, of the Australian cultural identity. But I'm not sure most of us know that much about him. Yeah, well, that's... And about who the person was. <laughs> Well, that's good because that means we're going to do some learning today. We're going to maybe understand a bit more about what makes him t- what made him tick, and maybe what led him down a dark path. So uh, we'll start we'll start right at the very uh, start of his story. He was born in June 1855 in um, Beveridge, Victoria, which uh, fun fact is only a 53 minute drive from where I am currently recording, um, and I think it's a lot closer to you, Dom. So you could say we are in Kelly Country. 
I mean, this is practically a location recording. Yeah. We are, on, yeah, we are right in the heart. We are of, on location uh, in Kelly Country. <laughs> <laughs> Bushrangers are plenty. It is pretty wild. Um, no, there is, there is a lot of places around here that have various um, Ned Kelly... F- shrines is the wrong word. Um, attractions. <laughs> attractions is the right word. Attractions is also the wrong word. Yes. So, so, yes, we are... Uh, it's on the border of like New South Wales and Victoria. So, we are kind of like in that area or close to mm. Kelly Country. Which is, uh, you know, hits home for us, I guess. Anyway, he was born in 1855 to John Red Kelly. The Irish love those nicknames, man. And uh, Ellen Quinn. Red Kelly and Ned Kelly. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's like, my name's John, but I'm called Red. I'm going to name my kid something that rhymes with my nickname, not my real name. (laughs) That'd be ridiculous. (laughs) That'd just be insane. (laughs) But yes, he was uh, born to Red Kelly and Ellen Quinn. And was the eldest of eight children. It's a big family. His father was a transported convict and died shortly after serving a six-month prison sentence. Wait, you could get sent to Australia for six months? I thought that we got people got sent here for like life in prison. No, so I th- what? so what would happen? Banished for six <laughs> months, or did here? he was he a convict that was transported here and then committed another yes. crime? So you, okay. you'll find that okay. he's a, he, he is a criminal. So he was transported here as a convict, and then he was like, "Oh, you know what? Like while I'm here, I may as well just keep doing what I was <laughs> just doing. More crime. What's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to send me somewhere. Can't, they can't put me on a, in a prison on this prison. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's that's that, that makes more yeah. sense. <laughs> He was not a reformed criminal, not a reformed it's just convict. Like, just like there's a nine-month journey to get to Australia to serve your six-month prison sentence. <laughs> you get there and it's like, okay. oh, you've already done nine, so you may as well go have some land. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? But um, no, this, uh, this tragic death left uh, Kelly at age 12 as the eldest male of the household. So, uh, a lot of responsibility at a young age. Um, I don't know how I would have coped with it. I don't know. Responsibility. I'm like 26, I think. And um, I, I'm not big on responsibility. <laughs> I, I, I don't have that level of responsibility now. Yeah. Like, so, at 12. That is a lot to put on a child. Look, and that, that may um, really show in some of his future decisions. Yeah. Like, you remember, this is a family with eight children. Yeah. A lot of kids. And now a single mother. Yeah. And a 12-year-old who is, I guess, now going to have to... The man of the house. ...help provide for the family. Yeah. Just completely normal times back then, I'm sure. Mm. It is worth noting, um, as a child, he saved another boy from drowning, and that boy's family awarded him a green silk sash in recognition of his bravery. So not necessarily a bad kid, would you say? Seems like a pretty decent fellow. Seems like a, a, a good kid with a kind heart... Where did it all go wrong? <laughs> where, where, where did it go wrong? Well, I think we might find out. Um, with that in mind, let's get into Ned's criminal career. Which uh, started in 1869 when he was 14 years old. So two years after becoming the man of the house, he was arrested for allegedly assaulting a Chinese man. Now, not... Great. Um, I don't know whether there was a dispute or if it was specifically because of race in this situation. Not sure. They're unclear on. This is one it. of those things where it's like we're looking. You're looking at historical documents, and it's like 
Was the fact that it was a Chinese dude important? Or was that just how they spoke back then? Yeah, it's hard to tell. And it, it was just, yeah, he insulted someone. It didn't say why. It's just like, oh, yeah, we threw him. He was insulted. We didn't conduct an extensive interview into why or how. It was he assaulted a Chinese man. That's it. That's all we know. Um, so, yeah, that was his first run in with the, uh, the establishment, the, uh, the popo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1870, he was arrested again for the second time. Uh, and this was for being suspected of, for being a suspected accomplice of Bushranger Harry Power. Uh, cool name. Uh, Very the, cool name. It is, especially for did, a Bushranger. Did originally think it was Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Uh, <laughs> Can you imagine if Harry Potter was named after a famous Australian uh, Bushranger? Bushranger, yeah, yeah. It was like, little boy wizard lives under the stairs and also a ruthless Australian criminal. <laughs> but Harry Power. Harry Power, yes, you are correct. Um, but both of these charges were dismissed, but it was too late as Ned had caught the attention of the police. He was on their radar and uh, that was probably never a good thing back then. Um, also, sir, Harry Power was like a mentor, I guess. Uh, it got him interested in the bush ranging profession and other such tomfoolery. And um, I don't know if you've watched it, but uh, Harry Power was recently portrayed by Russell Crowe in the film adaptation of True History of the Kelly Gang. I've seen it. I have not seen it. It's weird. Oh, okay. It's very weird. It leans into some other stuff that's uh, not necessarily proven true, but is speculated about them. It is also very artsy. And um, <laughs> it, it. so the dumb thing about the book and the movie, I will say, to go off on a bit of a tangent here, is it's, it's called The True History of the Tele- Kelly Gang. And then it says, then they're like the first thing is like, this is not a true, this is not based on true events. It's like, it's like something like that. It's very like, okay, <laughs> then why call it with that? It. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like fan fiction, like true history of the Kelly Gang. It's not real. It's fan fiction. True history. It's weird. Uh, anyway. Okay. Some years later, in April 1878, a police officer named Fitzpatrick, remember that name, uh, went Mm -hmm. to the Kelly home, hoping to arrest Ned's brother Dan for stealing horses. Fitzpatrick claimed that on this occasion, Ned shot him in the wrist, although it's unclear whether Ned was even present at the time that he was visiting. Um, Regardless, Ned's mother Ellen was arrested for aiding and abetting an attempted murder. Um, Wow. Yeah. They're really going after him now. Yeah, so he wasn't there at this time. I believe in the 2000 and... Oh, I forgot year, what year it was. The movie with uh, uh, Heath Ledger that I watched in preparation mm-hmm. for this podcast. They <laughs> they they make the uh, the statement that he wasn't there. They, they show him as not being there during this incident. So that's um, what they decided to show. And I think... I don't know. I don't necessarily trust the police in this, but I, it doesn't mean they're... I don't, know. I don't necessarily trust Fitzpatrick particularly. You have to wonder, right? So this is a guy who is, to the police, known to be part of, you know, uh, Harry Power's sort of gang, hanging out with him, doing all this bush rangery stuff, but they have been unable to pin him down before, right? And he got off on the, the previous charges. And so maybe, yeah, you go down to go down to his house looking to pick a fight, you know? You, yeah, uh, trying to arrest his brother on some trumped-up... Uh, charges about stealing horses yeah get shot in the wrist look it maybe. may have been a big not. plan who knows? who's to say not saying what's happened just saying arresting the mum feels like a low blow yeah I also just did look it up 2003 movie just so we're we're all clear on that um good but yeah, to quote your sources <laughs> this is where we are going to first touch on the idea of potential unfair police persecution towards mm. Ned and his family 
just something to think about as we continue down this uh, beaten track, as it were. All right. So, uh, in October 1878, six months after Ellen was arrested, Ned, Dan, Joe and Steve headed for Bullet Creek, where they hoped to earn enough money to appeal Ellen's sentence by running a whiskey distillery. So, perfectly reasonable, starting a new business. So, she gets, so she gets charged. She gets charged and convicted yep. of aiding and abetting a dude that probably wasn't there. And now her sons are going to have to go and make some whiskey in order to... Get raise the funds to appeal that decision. Yep, they're like we've got to we've got to start a start a an Indiegogo or a <laughs> a Kickstarter. We got to <laughs> we got to get this Kickstarter, Kickstarter going, um, and we've got to get our mum out of prison. I gotta say, this 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 rings to me of a dude who's not necessarily that bad of a dude. Like, yeah. you know, your first thought is I'm I'm gonna have to raise some money. It's not I'm gonna go kill some people and steal stuff. It's not I'm gonna go and rob a bank. It's let's. Start a brewery and have you a know, good time. Get uh, get my mum out of prison. Get some money. Yeah, look, it, it, at the moment it seems like he like as we all do. He had a rough teenage time as a teen. He got into a bit mm. of trouble, and it just seems that oh, he's trying to escape that, but it just keeps pulling him down. The police aren't letting him live it down. It seems like that. So uh, seems like that. So they went to start the whiskey distillery, right? And um, shortly after their arrival. They received warning that four policemen were planning to track them down because the police—they just can't let them go. They're like, "Oh, they're gonna—they're running—they're running away to start a whiskey distillery. We can't have that." Um, so what did Ned do? He rode around the surrounding areas and found sets of horse tracks leading to Stringy Bark Creek, close to where the gang was camped. So the police were hot on their tail, trail, tail. One of them. So this next part, there are different accounts of what happens next. But okay. what I'm about to go through is sort of a broad outline of events. So, yeah, th- it's a broad outline. It's mostly, like, it happened, and this is potentially the way it happened, but for the most part, I've left out any specific details from one party or the other. I think this is this is starting to become a sort of pattern with this story. It's like, we've got two unreliable narrators happening here. All yes. we can sort of grasp onto is, like, here's a thing that happened... Yeah, and but all the details around that tend to be a bit muddy. Yeah, and we will like later on. We'll get into maybe like Ned Kelly trying to tell parts of his story a bit differently. We'll get into it. We'll see. Um, but so naturally, the gang ambushed the police uh, camp at Stringy Bark Creek because they were being followed. They're like, let's get them first, I guess. Um, and at the camp, they found two of the four policemen. They found Constables Lonigan and McIntyre standing around a fire. Um, the gang drew their guns. Ned shot Lonigan and McIntyre surrendered. So just straight up shot him. I think in the movie there's a bit more back and forward, but the accounts that I read said like they came out, he shot shot Lonigan, and that, and then McIntyre surrendered. So there, yeah, it's who, it's a Star Wars who shot first scenario, I guess. But it, sure, <laughs> in the term of in like what actually what happened was Ned definitely shot Lonigan and McIntyre surrendered. But that definitely happened. Okay. How it happened? Eh, How that actually played out. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, if you want to be sympathetic, who knows? They, they, they might have just gone down there to see what's up and police get all antsy and, and start shooting. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is, you know, self defense. It might be. It might very well be. Who's to say? It's just trying to protect our, our Aussie hero here. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad someone is, uh, Dom. So, um, then the other two policemen. Sergeant Kennedy and Constable Scanlon were out. So when they returned, um, they refused to surrender to the gang. Um, 
and then the exchange of in the exchange of shots that followed, Ned killed Scanlan and later Kennedy. However, McIntyre, the first one who originally um, surrendered, at surrendered. The start, uh, managed to escape and raise the alarm. So he he used the opportunity, he seized it, and he he ran away. As all as all good survivors would do. <laughs> Smart man. He's made the best play out of anyone here, yeah, to be yeah. honest. He surrendered like, and then he took his opportunity. Surrender and then take your opportunity yeah. to run. I, I, I definitely, I relate to McIntyre in this situation, 100%. <laughs> but uh, this is the moment. Um, from now on, these four men were officially outlaws, the notorious Kelly gang. Confirmed, 100%. This is the moment. They are now proper on the land. Yeah, I mean, all it took was them to kill kill a couple of cops, you know? I mean, I mean that that's that's a, that's a pretty big threshold to jump. That's a pretty uh, pretty big pretty big moment, yeah. I would say. Like that's, this is that's the moment where you make that decision to, you know what, we're doing this. Yeah, they go from simple bush rangers, proper outlaws, to full-on cop-killing outlaws. Like, big jump. So, in response to the public outrage at the murder of police officers, the reward was raised to five hundred pound. So, what's that? What's that? In, what's that in new money? So, um, for reference, five hundred pound today is worth roughly fifty-six thousand seven hundred and eighty eighty-one-ish Australian dollars. That's a lot of money. Yeah, that that was an it's an interesting conversion because you have to find go you have to find convert it to Australian dollars and figure out like. Go back and it's fun, but that's a rough amount. <laughs> from my limited math knowledge, that is the rough amount, and it's quite a lot you gotta of money. Go from, you got to go from pounds to dollars to, and then, then inflation. Just for okay. inflation. <laughs> with but we're saying it's what fifty grand. Yeah, fifty, closer to sixty grand. That's a lot of money. Yeah, I'd, to catch I'd dude, I'd, I'd hunt them for that. A couple of criminals. That's a house deposit for sure, or part of a house deposit. Maybe I'm being a bit optimistic. You definitely don't get... I mean, first of all, do you get rewards these days for catching criminals? But you definitely don't get a 60 grand reward for catching a murderer. No. So, uh, you know what? Maybe it was better back then. Who knows? (laughs) At the very least, we can say that these guys had become a huge deal. They were a big deal. Um, And as well as raising the reward... On the uh, 31st of October 1878, the Victorian Parliament passed the uh, Felons Apprehension Act, which came into effect on November 1st, 1878. This Felons Apprehension Act, or as we will now refer to it as the FAR. 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 So this act uh, outlawed the gang and it made it possible for anyone to shoot them. So uh, vigilante justice, really. Uh, There was no need for the outlaws to be arrested or for there to be a trial upon apprehension. Hold up, hold up, hold up. They passed a law specifically targeting the Cali gang. And not only did they say, we want to get these guys, this is an actual, honest to God, wanted dead or alive. Yeah, so it's wanted dead or... it's So they, the Felons Apprehension Act was made because of the Kelly gang, but it doesn't specifically state in them, you may kill the Kelly gang. I think it's like, it's like in case sure. this happens again, we want this act to be able to u- be used again. So yeah, it, it is. But a the sen- implication here is that now there are people that can be targeted by the government, and and it is now legal to just kill them. Yeah, they're they're fair game for There's them. No early Batman types, here. Really. There's no 
There's no trial. Like, this is, this is a massive step beyond citizen's arrest. Yes. This is just ordinary people. If you find one of these criminals, you can just be their executioner. Yeah, and you get paid $56,000 to do it. That is insane. I think. I think those two cross over. Um, but yeah, that's pretty wild. And consider, like they haven't done a lot at this point. Like they've just killed some cops and run away. Realistically, like yeah, they've only just begun. That that's a real worrying sentence. Um, but yes. Oh the, boy. <laughs> the act also penalised anyone who harboured or gave any aid, shelter, or sustenance to the outlaws, or withheld or gave false information about them to the authorities. Punishment was imprisonment with or without hard labour for such period not exceeding 15 years. So, I'm going to posit this to you. Imagine if you let a friend sleep over at your house and then after that you had to do 15 uh, years of hard labour. How would you feel about that? I would not be very happy. I would not be happy if it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, my mate Ned, he he stayed over and I gave him some bread. You don't even have to sleep over sustenance. Yeah, you just That's give like, him some bread. Hey, mate, can I borrow some bread? Yeah, 15 years hard labour. No thanks. It was, and they paint it this way in the uh, 2003 movie, well, there's more of like a, like incentive to get people to roll on them. And it it, did, it didn't really work. People seemed very happy to help them and then just be like, fuck the police <laughs> and then uh, do, do their time or just try and not get caught. Like, people were very, like the peep, the sentiment at the time was very much on the gang's side. Well, you got to wonder, like to us now looking at this, the response by by the government seems pretty disproportionate to the crimes they've committed so far. Like at the end of the day, you got a couple people who killed some cops and yeah, that's not a good thing. They should definitely be punished for that. They should definitely go to prison for a long, long time. But the scrapping of an entire judicial process and, you know... <laughs> giving hard labour to someone who gives them bread does seem like an overreaction now. Yes. And I wonder if that's how the public felt at the time. Yeah, well, at the time, like, it's also like uh, people didn't stand up to the establishment. Like, it was just not a thing. And people mm. felt hard done by by the establishment. And like this was... They saw someone standing up for it. The un- As we'll get into later, the underdog uh, story. The, under- the idea of the underdog. And people mm-hmm. really, I think, res- that resonated with people. So... The sentiment was very... Pub, like, the public sentiment was on their side. I, I feel like in more... you Just from what I've gathered in the stories, like, definitely police definitely didn't have that sentiment. And maybe a bit more, like, educated people, like teachers and ministers, religious ministers, were definitely not part of that sentiment either. It was definitely a, a, the, the lower tiers of society. I mean, this makes sense, right? Like, you've got a, a country that is created as a prison island, right? Yep, that's what Obviously, we are. everyone there who isn't part of the establishment is going to have a problem with authority. Like, it is not surprising that people rally behind someone that is standing up against the system. Yep. Smash the uh, patriarchy. Uh, <laughs> but no, um, the Kelly gang continued to evade capture and cause a ruckus. If you want to know more specifics about this ruckus, there is plenty of information online and out in the ether, but we're going to skip ahead to the big thing, the siege at Glenroe. So they, okay. they 
There are some bank robberies in there. There's some, so like typical bush ranger stuff, stick ups, bank robberies, but like they're, they're just more build up for the, for the grand event. Tell you what, I, I, I do like just the sheer audacity from you of, of starting a true crime podcast and just being like, yeah, we're going to go with a story so big that we're just skimming over all the bank robberies. It's yeah. just like, that's not even the meat. <laughs> no, that's just, that's just appetizer. Like, yeah, there's bank robberies. They did that. And it was, that's part of the reason why you can kill them on site. A lesser podcast would have started with a bank robbery, but no. No, no, we're going no, straight for a big old shootout. A big, dr- it's the drama. It's almost Shakespearean, all right? So there is a bit of a build-up to these events that happen at Glen Rowan. Um, but essentially, the uh, Popo were staking out a couple of houses of uh, Kelly Gang sympathizers near Beechworth, and they were using the house of Aaron Sherritt as a base of operations. Now, who is Aaron Sherritt, I hear you ask? Are you going to ask? Oh, sorry. Yeah, who is Aaron Sherritt? Beautiful, beautiful. Um... <laughs> Aaron Sherritt was a neighbour and friend to relatives of the gang. He accepted police payments for camping and with the watch parties and for providing information on the Bushrangers' activities. You happy with that? Yeah, very happy. Yeah, cool. Aaron Sherritt, CI. Yeah. Um, while many policemen suspected him of being a double agent for the gang, um, so he was playing Ooh. both sides, essentially, um, Detective Michael Ward planned to bring the Bushrangers out of hiding by spreading rumours that Sherritt's true loyalties lay with the police. So he was playing both sides, but he was essentially telling the Kelly gang, hey, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm helping you mostly. Like, I'm just playing this with them. But then this police officer was like, but like, what if they stop believing that? Gotta say, like, this is what, this is the play I'd make. The McIntyre play was a good one, but uh, this is, this is the play I'd make. I, I, I Wait, play both Sherritt's, sides. Sherritt's play, yep. Yeah. Yeah, not sure, not sure who my loyalties are. I'm not sure I'd even. So, know so who Dom's my a bit of a sherret. His uh, his loyalty can be bought. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you put it like that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, this gossip proved to be too good to resist, and the uh, gang just decided to murder Sherret. I would like to recant my earlier testimony. <laughs> I'm not sure. I want to be in Sherret's <laughs> shoes. Um, so Dan Kelly and Joe Byrne hit the road, they kill Sherritt, escape and return, and it's after these events, plan, a plan starts to take shape. So, um, I'll just go into a bit more detail about, so there's, Joe Byrne in the movie is kind of the friend of Sherritt, like they're all, they, the reason they all know Sherritt is they are friends with Joe Byrne, they're really good friends with Joe Byrne, he is a friend of Joe Byrne since he was a young age, and I... I tried to find some stuff on this, but it, it might be true. It might not. But so essentially, it's a bit. It might have a bit of a deeper meaning for Joe Byrne. He has been betrayed by a friend, and then he is part of the team that goes to kill him. Uh, in the movie, it is actually him who fires the shot. Couldn't find anything to back that up, but yeah. So there is, there is a bit of a deeper meaning aside from him just being a guy who lived around the area potentially. It, I think sure. it resonated better in the movie that way. So that's why I thought it was worth mentioning. So, yes, after these events, the gang estimated that the police inside Sherritt's hut would relay news of this murder to Beechworth by early Sunday morning-ish, prompting a special train to be sent up from Melbourne. They also surmised that the train would collect reinforcements in Benalla before continuing through to Glen Rowan. 
All right. So they're 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 thinking ahead. Thinking ahead. They they they've they've acted, and now they're like, okay. So what's the response to this going to be? Yeah. And how can we get ahead of that? Yeah. So at Glen Rowan, the gang plan to wreck the train and shoot dead any survivors, then ride to an unpoliced Benalla where they would rob the banks, set fire to the courthouse, blow up the police barracks, release anyone imprisoned in the jail, and generally play havoc with the entire town before returning to the bush. Um, what do you think of their plan? Personally, I think it's surprisingly more thought out than I'd expect from them. It is both more thought out, but also far more chaotic <laughs> than I had anticipated. It really is like a go big or go home kind of plan. This is an endgame kind of plan. This is like, you know what? This is our move. Yeah, yeah. We're going to make it count. Well, like when the, when it says like, oh, they're going to play havoc and then return to the bush, it's like they're just going to fade into the bush. And like this is the last we hear of them. Like this is, their... this is This is a proper like, yeah. Yeah. This is their big finale. But yeah, so the gang forced line repairers to damage the track at Glen Rowan. Then, without meeting much resistance, they took over Glen Rowan and imprisoned the locals at Ann Jones Glen Rowan Inn. Not bad. Not too bad for a prison, to be honest. Just hanging out at I mean, inn. to be honest, back in those days, not sure what else you'd be up to anyway. Yeah, that, that was probably easy because everyone was already <laughs> there. They were just like, there's like one guy over there. We'll just put him in with everyone else. <laughs> but um, by Sunday afternoon, the gang had gathered a total of 62 hostages at the hotel... As the hours passed without any sight of the train, the gang insisted that that drinks be provided to the townspeople and that music be played. So it turned into a proper party, really. I mean... Sunday fun day. It sounded pretty good. I'm liking this plan more and more. Yeah, it's, this sounds fun. Um, You're not going to like it as we go on, but like it, st- it starts like oh. a pretty good party. But sometimes a party turns bad. Well, this is the problem, isn't it? Like... <sighs> you starting to let your guard down, maybe? Is this where we're heading? Like, oh, look, maybe. Once you start having an actual party, feel like you're starting to lose control of your plan a bit. Mm. Well, uh, with that in mind, in walks Thomas Kernow, a local schoolmaster who sought to gain the gang's trust in order to thwart their plans, helped capture Glen Rowan's lone constable. So he was like, I'm going to help them capture the constable as a sort of in with them, right? Alrighty. Now, now he was thought of as a, as a sympathizer. And uh, so they kind of let their guard down around him specifically. So well played by him. And um, hearing the train's approach at 3am, Kurnow was able to rush to the line and warn the train to stop by raising a lit candle behind a red scarf. He told the driver of the gang's plans. The train then slowly made its way to Glen Rowan. So quite a play. Big, big balls on this guy. Big balls on this guy. But I mean... Just ke- for those keeping track, this is not the play I would have made. No? Well, we, I would not would've... have been, absolutely no way am I double-crossing the Cali gang at this point. Yeah, like... You know you know what their plan is. They've imprisoned the whole town. Just sit back and let that one play out, mate. And, like, spoilers, like, we're going into a siege and, like, there are hostage... Like, not everyone's going to get out okay, so Thomas is maybe responsible for a couple of innocent deaths with this plan. So was was it the right, really the right thing? Who's to say? Um, but now we are going to be getting into another important part of the Ned Kelly legacy, my favourite, to be honest. Um, any guesses as to what that could be, Dom? What, what, what's running through your mind? 
Oh, I'm not sure. An important part of the legacy. I don't know. It's the what? armor, man. Of course it's the armor. Oh, of course the armor. Yeah, the infamous armor, which was uh, recently on display at the State Library of Victoria as part of their Velvet Iron and Ashes exhibition. Um, according to their website, it was only on display until 20th of July 2020 this year. But uh, due to COVID stuff, I'm not sure if it's there or if it's like in a vault. Not really sure about that one. Hmm. One day we might have be you... able to see it. I have. Have you seen it? I have seen it. It is very basic. <laughs> I, I have seen it at some point. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's. Look, I think for the time, it's pretty damn good. Let's let's just say Ned Kelly better bush ranger than he was a blacksmith. <laughs> well, yeah, well the suits allowed the gang to walk away unharmed from close range shooting, um, but this one is important. It also served a less practical function. They made the gang members, Ned in particular, seem larger and more intimidating, even ghostly. The shock factor of the metal clad Kelly would have been much to Ned's advantage during this siege. As I said, very Shakespearean. I mean, you can just imagine it, can't you, right? Like, if you're a cop coming off this train and you're like, right, we're going to go and get these bushrangers. These are a couple dudes, you know, they've been robbing banks, all of this, but, you know, they're people, right? And there's a shit ton of cops. And then he comes out in this crazy suit of armour, this huge suit of armour that is impenetrable. My goodness, that's an imposing sight. Yep, and we're going to get into that. So back to the siege. The police approached the inn and noticed a single figure standing on the veranda, who immediately opened fire. The police returned fire and the other three gang members, all dressed in their armour, joined Ned. In the first volley, Ned was wounded in the left hand and arm and received a shot to his right foot that entered at the toes and and exited at the heel. Ow. Feet, man. Just don't shoot at the feet. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But, yeah, so, uh, well, essentially the armor allowed them to just, like, they got minor injuries, but it just allowed them to carry on, essentially, like, Mm -hmm. protected them from fatal shots. But, yeah, um, the police and the gang. It's essentially the same as body armor today, you know? Like, you can still get shot in the arm or the foot, but all your, your main insides are now protected. Yeah, yeah, the vital organs, as they're known. Thank you. That's what I was going for, my main insights. <laughs> uh, the police and the gang fired at each other for about a quarter of an hour. Um, the Royal Commission found that Ned Kelly, having retreated into the hotel after the first volley, almost certainly walked out the back door for about 150 metres, leading his horse. And at about 100 metres, he dropped his rifle and lay down behind a log until just after 7am in the morning. So he was kind of like pushed back a little bit and went and, went and did a little tricky, sneaky manoeuvre. Fair enough. The police trackers and civilian volunteers surrounded the hotel throughout the night, and the firing continued intermittently. At 5am, reinforcements arrived from Benalla and Wangaratta. Around this stage, Byrne made a toast while drinking whiskey at the bar, saying, Many more years in the bush for the Kelly gang. And then moments later, a stray bullet passed through a small gap in his armour and severed his femoral artery, and he bled out within minutes. So, uh, quite ironic and quite the opposite of what he just proclaimed. <laughs> yes. Okay, I see. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I guess, a real-life example of one of those things you just don't say. Yeah. I you mean, know, this is the Bush Ranger equivalent of, you know, today is the day I retire. 
Like, yeah. you don't say things like that in the middle of a siege. That's just tempting fate. Yeah, or like the everything will be fine. Little did he know that everything would not be fine. <laughs> but yeah, so that that's uh, quite a way to go out. Mm. So we're now in the morning, and uh, in the dim light of dawn, Kelly, dressed in his armour and armed with three handguns, rose out of the bush and attacked the police from the rear. Several members of the scattered police lines returned fire, but to no effect as Kelly moved steadily through the morning mist towards the hotel, his armour repelling bullets. The size and shape of the armour made him appear inhuman to the police, and his apparent invulnerability caused onlookers to react with superstitious awe. It's haunting, right? Like It's so haunting. It is, it is so dramatic the theatrics of this is he came from behind them as well like he'd come and he just appeared behind like it's it's pretty theatric kelly's got some game like you'd be pretty spooked right like you think you've got this guy pinned up in this hotel right along with his gang members you've taken a few people out you know you might you're thinking that you know there's a fair chance that the police could win this thing and Oh my goodness, to have the man, to have Ned Galley rise up behind you in his suit of armour and start unleashing an inferno of bullets upon you. That's That's got to be scary. Yeah, I'm sure. Scary. It's, it's truly terrifying. And um, also, on top of that, Kelly began laughing as he shot at and taunted the police. And he called out to the remaining outlaws to recommence firing, uh, which they did, of course. Um, and this strange contest continued for almost 10 minutes. Oh, my goodness. And Kelly, weakened by blood loss, managed to advance for 50 or so yards. So he was just, like, slowly making his way towards them. Wow. But uh, after diving to the ground to avoid one of Kelly's shots, Sergeant Steele, cool name, by the way. Very cool name. Very name cool of a hero. Name. Um realized that the figure's legs were unprotected. Uh, smart man. He shot at them twice with his shotgun, tearing apart Kelly's hip and thigh. Ow. Um, the outlaw staggered, then collapsed Ow. against a fallen tree and moaned, I'm done, I'm done. Steele went to disarm him, but Kelly fired once more, blowing the sergeant's hat off and burning the side of his face. So he wasn't quite done yet. So he wasn't... <laughs> quite a trickster, that Ned Kelly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, he was carried to the railway station, placed in a guard's van, and then taken to the station master's office where a doctor dressed his wounds. And meanwhile, the siege continued. Hostages confirmed that Dan and Hart were still alive in the hotel. They kept shooting from the rear of the building during the morning. By afternoon, Dan and Hart had ceased shooting. Superintendent Sadler was unwilling to allow his men to storm the hotel, and eventually the decision was made to set fire to it, as you do. Yeah, I mean, Whoa. it's just, the police are just, like, extremes. They're just like, let's just go to the That's next level. That's a nuclear option. That's like... We're going to raise and burn. Goodness. That's just wow. completely obliterate. Um, but- I mean, to be fair, this is uh, continuing the trend of uh, just disproportionate police response. Yes. Yes, it is a, it is a bit of a trend, isn't it? Um, <laughs> under cover of gunfire, a senior constable placed a bundle of burning straw at the hotel's west side. A light westerly wind carried the flames into the hotel and it rapidly caught a light. Matthew Gibney, a priest from Western Australia, entered the burning structure in an attempt to rescue anyone inside. He apparently discovered the bodies of Dan and Hart, who he surmised had committed suicide. Whether they died in a suicide pact or by other means remains a mystery. 
So they're there, they're, they're gone, kaput. Um, that there is actually a theory that Dan Kelly survived the siege and got away, but we won't get be getting into that too much today. It's worth looking up. Okay. Interested? I think it's been debunked, but I'm not sure. Just some lady claimed to be uh, her, like one of her ancestors was Dan Kelly and it escaped. I think it's been debunked, but it's some interesting reading if for the conspiracy theorists out there. Whereas people don't know what happened to Dan, we do know what happened to Ned. So he survived to stand trial on the 19th of October in 1880 in Melbourne before Sir Redmond Barry, the judge who had earlier sentenced Kelly's mother to three years in prison for the attempted murder of Fitzpatrick. So maybe some bias? I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, I I wouldn't have put the same judge on that case. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, you want to get this guy. It, it, it is interesting, the uh, the way this has come back around, you know? Like, this all kind of started when you guys arrested his mum. And uh, now there's been a huge siege. I mean, I am amazed that he survived this siege. And he's yeah. now standing trial. <laughs> Especially with a law in place that he could just be shot on sight. Yeah, he... Of, yeah, of all the people to have made it this far, he probably mm-hmm. shouldn't have. Um... <laughs> He was, alas, charged with murdering Constable Lonigan and Constable Scanlon, um, various mm-hmm. bank robberies, the murder of Sherritt, resisting arrest at Glen Rowan, and a long list of minor charges. He was convicted of the willful murder of Lonigan and sentenced to death by hanging. Fun times. <laughs> After handing down the sentence, Barry concluded with customary words, May God have mercy on your soul, to which Kelly replied, I will go a little further than that, and I say, I will see you there where I go. <laughs> Man loves to backtalk and can't shut his mouth. Just, I mean, just it's a pretty good line. Very, very, very snarky and sarcastic, that Ned Kelly. <laughs> After he was sentenced, Ned's friends and family, along with David Gawson, a parliamentarian, organised a petition for reprieve and did their best to obtain as many signatures as possible to try and save Ned's life from the hangman's noose. Um, petitions were nothing new in Ned's day. They were used to help gain compo for Ann Jones to try and stop Constable Fitzpatrick from being booted out of the police force in Lancefield, to get Mr. Ryan out of jail after being arrested under the FAR, and several others associated with Kelly's story. So, petitions were a thing. Did it work? Well, we're going to find out, aren't we, Dom? The petition for reprieve... I'm prompting you to tell me. (laughs) (laughs) The petition for reprieve was organised, published widely, and then presented to the governor. Over 30,000 signatures were collected on the petition. The actual numbers of signatures reported varies from 30,000 to 60,000. So, almost double. So, you know, totally accurate numbers there. (laughs) The petition for reprieve has an important place in Australian colonial history. It demonstrates the tensions between the establishment, the incumbent government of Victoria, and the general population, anti-authoritarian working-class battlers. But alas, the petition did not succeed. So we touched on that. There is, like, everyone didn't like the establishment, and they thought Ned was standing up to them, and they appreciated that. I mean, even even at the lower end of that range, that's a staggering number of signatures to get on them. I wonder how many you'd get these days for, like, like, a Ned Kelly type. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think you'd get. I don't think you'd get thirty thousand. I mean, like, yeah, you know, we've got this uh, 
actual murderer and and bank robber. He's a proper criminal. Uh, he's he's holed up in a hotel and kept an entire town hostage. And 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 there's been a siege, and we've got him, and he's been sentenced to death. And not quite sure you'd get the public support these days. Definitely a different time for sure. I mean, granted, you'd you'd probably get a lot of. Uh, don't hang the man. Yes. But uh, you probably wouldn't get a whole lot of, like, just straight... Set him free. Go. <laughs> <laughs> the day before his execution, Kelly had his photographic portrait taken as a keepsake for his family, and he was granted farewell interviews with his relatives. So quite nice. nice. Uh, yeah. Ned was hanged at Old Melbourne Jail on the 11th of November, 1880, and his famous last words, depending on the story you hear, were, ah, well, I suppose it has come to this, or uh, such is life feel like one is slightly more poetic than the other, just on a personal level. Which one do you like more? Um, I feel like, ah, oh, well, I suppose it has come to this is more of a, like an expression that some would say, whereas such as life is kind of like, what's the essence of what he said? That this is what he kind of yeah. said. I, I really like, ah, I guess it's come to this. <laughs> yes. It's just like... <laughs> It's kind of what I want my last words to be. Yeah. Just like, ah, oh, all right. What are you going to do? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> que sera, sera. <laughs> And that is the end of the life of Ned Kelly. So that's start to end his life. Um, but however, as we've mentioned and hinted at, his legacy lives on. But why? Yes. He's a criminal, right? Yeah, right? Like... Interesting. Interesting. There are a couple of reasons I can think of, and uh, we've touched on some of them. Number one, uh, lots of people who feel persecuted by the police or authorities see Ned Kelly as somewhat of an underdog. There's no denying that Ned Kelly was a notorious criminal, feared around Victoria and beyond as a robber and murderer. Despite this, he had many sympathisers who believed that he was a symbol of the Australian spirit an enduring underdog with the courage to challenge the authorities. A true Aussie battler. Uh, how do you feel about that, Don? I mean, I think that's I think that's a fair assessment, right? Like, even today, Australia uh, has this cultural identity as, like, the underdog. And, you know, there is this whole... In a similar way to how America um, sort of sees themselves as, you know unique and different and, and, and they see freedom as a, and it's important cultural touchstone because of the way that country was founded. I think, yeah, we see it in a similar way where it's like, um, we, we have this sort of anti authority underdog sort of thing that comes from those convict roots. And so if you take that feeling and you, you bring it to the extreme that's Ned Kelly, right? Like, like that is everything that he embodies. Is you know when when you when you're sitting there hating hating the 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 system and and hating the authorities, who doesn't want to hold up in a hotel and and you know enact a huge siege once in a while? On a separate note, how are you doing over there, Dolph? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. You good? All right. Just checking in. Um, just, <laughs> just maybe, maybe it's, it makes sense to timestamp <laughs> when we're recording this. You, we are under lockdown while recording as this. We enter, yeah, <laughs> from the government. Week nine of our 
six week lockdown. But no, this this perception was definitely one that Kelly seemed to latch onto, and um, it was fueled by his jurildry uh, letter, which is an eight thousand word manifesto in which he justified Oof. his crimes and exposed what he viewed as unfair police persecution of himself and his family. Despite its rough language and lack of grammar or punctuation, the Jurildry letter offers a valuable insight into Ned Kelly's personality. It tells the story of a young man forced into crime by situations beyond his control. So that's how he felt. He thought so he was forced. This makes sense, right? You've got a guy who has a similar upbringing to a lot of people, who expresses these sentiments that everyone who feels disenfranchised by society is expressing, and who has some pretty good PR backing it all up. Saying like, yeah, I'm I, I'm doing all this for you. This is, I'm I'm enacting your fantasies. Yeah, if I was a criminal, I'd want Ned Kelly's publicist for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Done a great job. Um, a second, my second reason for uh, this sort of status is the armor, um, the letterbox mm. style headpiece and the matching body armor worn by Ned Kelly and his gang are recognizable icons that feature prominently in the work of artists such as Sidney Nolan and Albert Tucker. Um, the gang began constructing the suits of armour a year before the Glenrowan siege from mould boards and the thick metal parts of farmers' ploughs. They acquired these materials in various ways. Some were bought, others were offered to them by sympathetic farmers, and a few were even stolen. And uh, as previously mentioned, the shock factor of the metal-clad Kelly would have been much to Ned's advantage during the Glenrowan siege. I think the the armor is a powerful yeah. is powerful imagery essentially, and just that that image just yeah. would have stuck in the minds. Of, and you know what? Of, of it perfectly translates to be a perfect bumper sticker as well. <laughs> it really does. It's powerful, powerful imagery. <laughs> perfect for bumper stickers. The third and final reason for uh, Kelly's legacy uh, on my in my mind um, has to do with the celebration of criminals in media. Mm. I'm actually going to read an excerpt from an assignment I did in university about the idea of the outlaw hero. Sure. So, uh, the Where's my outlaw hero? The celebration of criminals is primarily made possible through the modern media that use crime as entertainment and as a commodity to be consumed and enjoyed by the public in the form of true crime. However, the popular fascination with criminals and their acts has had a long history. Early celebrated criminals such as Robin Hood, Dick Turpin, or Bonnie and Clyde became famous prior to the culture industry and were romanticized because of the audacity of their crimes or their alleged fight on behalf of the poor. Australia, with its convict ancestry, has a unique relationship with its iconic outlaws, some of whom became legendary figures during their time and are celebrated to this day, most notably Ned Kelly. And there you have it. Like, our media, we are meant to celebrate some outlaws, particularly the older ones. That makes sense. I mean, it's what we're doing right now. Yeah, it's what we're doing right now. It's just, yeah. We're part of that machine. Yeah, we are part of that (laughs) ever-churning machine. Um, But yeah, so with that, the first episode of Infamous Individuals has survived the damaged tracks and is pulling into the station. Um, any final thoughts on Ned Kelly or his legacy today, Dom? That is an unbelievable story. Like, I, you could not um, imagine a series of events that is just, you know, so perfect in every way. Like, it is no wonder that this man has become 
a, a legend because the, the true events behind him are so legendary. Like, you said it, it, it is like a it is. Shakespearean drama. It also had like, it's pretty crazy because it also has the potential to have not have been. Like, he killed some police. Maybe they just hunted him down. Like, they didn't react so poorly. They just kind of sent some people after him. Like, but it kind of just got blown out of proportion and like the retaliation kept building and building. Yes, there is, there is definitely an argument here that uh, Ned Kelly was kind of made by... He's made like by Batman. ...to a certain extent. He, like, but the opposite. There were some, some poor decisions from both sides. The police... It's like Batman. Like, Batman... If Batman didn't exist, his villains wouldn't either. So if the police didn't exist, Ned Kelly wouldn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Batman. That's a good. That's yes. a good conclusion to reach. Ned <laughs> Kelly, like what a what a what an analogy. Um, thank you for listening. I just want to quickly uh, end today with some media slash portrayals. Um, so if you're interested in more, so the two we mentioned the 2003 Ned Kelly movie. Um, I, of the Ned Kelly movies I've watched, definitely my most enjoyable. It doesn't review very well, but people I, I liked it. It's fun. It has Orlando Bloom and um, mm-hmm. Heath Ledger. Rest in peace. Beautiful, beautiful Australian-born actor. Um, I also mentioned True History of the Kelly Gang, which was more recent, I think 2019. Uh, it's very artsy. It's very not true, but it has some elements in there. Like Harry Power is featured in it, who isn't featured in m- most other Ned Kelly movies. And then uh, this is just a fun fact one. There is the the story of the Kelly Gang, which is the earliest feature length narrative film oh, in history. Because when you listen to this... It, it, Yes. It, make, it makes sense. It's made to be a movie. It really is. It it really is. Yeah, and and that's a, that's I, I like yeah. that fact. That's a fun little fact that uh, Australians um, made the the first ever yeah movie. It's pretty cool on our part. First ever proper feature length film is an Australian film about Ned. Yeah, Kelly. I don't know that I I like I'm, I don't feel personally like proud of Ned Kelly as an Australian, but I feel proud of the fact that we had the first feature movie. That's that's my vibe. I'm proud of <laughs> yeah, us for that. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me, Dom. Thank you for coming on this train ride with me. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Yes. And uh, this is, of course, a pilot. So hopefully we'll be back with a full season at some point of uh, various infamous individuals. But uh, if not, this was a fun ride all the same. And uh, thank you for listening. This has been a Spiky Trap Radio production. For more Spiky Trap Radio content, please head to spikytrap.com.